want to share a passage with you before we really climb into our sermon. I'm going to pray in a moment, but even before we pray, I want to kind of raise the awareness of where we're going this morning. We're talking about God today. Matthew chapter 12. Don't, don't turn there, just listen. I, got, I want you to save your energy because you're going to need it for the rest of the sermon. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Listen to this. Jesus is speaking. It says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The reason we begin with that passage this morning is these last few weeks we've been talking about the godness of the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear there from God the Son. We're not going to get into what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. That's like a Wednesday night Bible study or maybe a Sunday morning whole sermon dedicated. But I just want you to hear the tone. That God the Son is saying, man, don't run down the Holy Spirit. Don't call something that the Holy Spirit is doing as not from Him. That's what blasphemy is. Don't do that. He has an incredibly high view of the Holy Spirit. And what you need to know before we really climb into this sermon about the Holy Spirit is that He's not an angel. He's not a cherub. He is God, the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully Spirit. We're going to get into here in a moment what He does. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the time that we have together this morning. We're thankful for the, the reason, uh, one of the things that we celebrate today is our fathers and uh, being fathers and future fathers. We just uh, appreciate so much what you show us and what you give us and fathers that are about works that matter and about engaging their families about shepherding. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning will be an encouragement to them. I pray that they'll be blessed by the way their family ministers to them today. Uh, Lord, this morning also we want to lift up another church. We want to lift up C3, Commerce Community Church, and David Ferguson and Whitney, um, Ron Perone and Patty. We want to thank you so much for their willingness to go when, when sent, for the families that traveled with them and moved to Commerce to be part of this plant. Lord, we are so thankful for the people that they are engaging, the young college students from all over the globe that are hearing and engaging the gospel weekly. Lord, we pray for a kingdom impact there, not something that is going to make much of man, but something that's going to engage the kingdom and the rule of you in the heart of man. Lord, we pray that there will be people from Samoa or India are the Philippines who hear messages week by week, who are arrested with the faith, and who go home and bring the gospel to their families and friends. Lord, we pray for that sort of impact and pray that your name will be great among that people. We pray, too, for an engagement of commerce. We are recognize that commerce is a lot like Greenville, and uh, there are some challenges in almost a post-Christian environment. We pray that just a true, salty, bright, aromatic people will be used for your glory. There'll be an encouragement to other Christians in the community, and that there'll be a sweet aroma to those you're, you're saving. Lord, in these next few minutes, we want to just lift up our time as we engage this God the Spirit. We pray that God the Spirit is present, that the unction is present, that He is working in our hearts, that the spiritual among us are hungry. Pray that we're not grieving the Holy Spirit by being distracted this morning or thinking about other things and that we can truly, with focus, engage something that matters. 
Lord, I pray that you will give us a divine attentiveness that I fear that I just don't even have. I know I don't have. Pray for a divine attentiveness from the Holy Spirit to where we can engage these truths about the Holy Spirit. We love you so much, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. We're in John 14. You can go ahead and turn there. I want to give you a map, too, of kind of where we're going this morning. I think it's helpful. Some of you might have uh, little markers that you can mark your Bible. You know that we go to different places in the Bible. Some of you have heard my illustration of the, the GPS, the way a GPS unit works, at least the early GPS units. When I was in the Marine Corps, they issued them. They were about this big. They, they would do what a little handheld thing would do now. And they wouldn't give you a reading of where you were unless you had three satellites. I mean, you turn that thing on, and you're out in the middle of the ocean in a Zodiac boat, and you think, man, I want to know where I am. And you turn that bad boy on, and nothing, because you didn't have three satellites. But if you had three satellites, it could triangulate and tell you precisely within 10 feet or so, 10 meters, where you were. It's a pretty cool deal. It's a great way to handle the word is to gather satellites. The more satellites you gather, the more able you are to triangulate on where you stand. While one verse is completely true, it does not and will not reveal the truth completely. You've got to eat a balanced diet. We've got to gnaw on various passages and try and synthesize them and engage them together to get a robust truth and a robust reading on where we stand. So this morning, let me give you a map. You can mark these down. We're starting in John 14. We're going from John 14 to Exodus 35. Then 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Then Acts chapter 2. Lots of satellites. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Romans 8, Hebrews 10, and lastly, John 7. See, it's a manwich this morning. A manwich, not a sandwich. It's appropriate for Father's Day. John chapter 14, verse 16. Context here is Jesus is speaking with his disciples in the last hours, going up to the cross. He's speaking with the 11. One has left the table, Judas, by this point. He's speaking to their troubled hearts. And here he says, guys, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you an orphan. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, it says you. In the original language, it's an emphatic. It could read reasonably, but you guys. The rest of the world won't know him. But as for you, you know him, for he dwells with you. And check it out, he will be in you. Jesus didn't say check it out, but that's essentially where he's going right there. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you this thing we've engaged the last few weeks, this thing called the Holy Spirit, this person, capital P, God, the Spirit, Holy Spirit. And sure enough, seven weeks after this night, seven weeks almost to the day as Pentecost, seven weeks after Passover when Jesus was crucified, God the Son prayed that God the Father would send God the Spirit who had been dwelling with them, and He shows up at something called Pentecost, and He moves into them. He got what He prayed for, and to this day, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. So it's worth engaging what this Holy Spirit does. A couple of weeks ago, we considered our first sermon on the Holy Spirit from this, these couple of passages is that He helps us. He's the paraclete. That's what the original language is for helper. It's paraclete. 
He says, I'm going to send another paraclete, and the way the context is handled, like me. It's not just an additional paraclete, but I'm going to send another one, and he's going to look a lot like me, is essentially what he's saying right there. There's so much mystery surrounding the Holy Spirit, and there's so much stuff going on where it's hard to know, is this from the Holy Spirit or not? We can get our hands around this and appreciate that he's, if he's saying, I'm going to send another paraclete like me, then this Holy Spirit is going to look a lot like Jesus looked when he walked on the earth. I never saw Jesus flopping around on the floor or getting bonked in the head or bonking anybody else in the head. Now, we're going to, we're going to lovingly, that's, a, that's not unloving when I say that, we're going to lovingly deal with some of those extremes, not in detail. But what we considered a couple weeks ago is that this helper will look like Christ. What did Christ do whenever he walked the earth? Is he taught. Man, everywhere he went, they called him the teacher. And sure enough, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us all things. He brings to remembrance all that Christ has said and done. He bears witness to Christ. And what we considered last week, he guides us into all truth. It's helpful to know that this paraclete is going to be a helper like Christ. We define, too, help based on this. If he is the helper that we have right now with us, indwelling, then we can define help from that. We, can t- we consider this continuum of help. On one end, we have a Tweety Bird and a, a green light and aspirin. Those are helpful, right? You have to listen to the sermon to get it, <laughs> if you didn't listen to it. And then in the middle, there's a paycheck. That's helpful. But none of those things are eternally helpful. On the eternal end, it's helpful to know that we have a another paraclete, the original paraclete, the advocate in the high court of heaven mediating on our behalf saying, no, they're innocent because of my blood, Father. That's help. That's eternal help. So there's a continuum of help. So we defined help. Help is help only in so much as it engages the Holy Spirit in what he does. Teaching, bringing to remembrance, bearing witness about Christ and guiding into all truth. Men, you want to be a help to your families? Great day for us to engage that as fathers, single moms. You want to be a help to your families? You will help them only in so much as you engage what the Holy Spirit does. Is it helpful going to Six Flags? Ask my kids. Boy, they would say, yeah. (laughs) Is it helpful going to the fair? Sharp stick in the eye for me? (laughs) Yes. It's helpful. It's helpful eating food. But none of those things are eternally helpful. What's eternally helpful is to do what the Holy Spirit does. So you want to be a help to your family and friends and neighbors and people that you say you love and care about? That's the way you help them. You engage with what the Holy Spirit does. Last week, we considered that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. That's the second thing that we considered. He's the helper that's like Christ. He's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit who communicates truth. First John says that he is actually the truth, which makes total sense. If Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and if this spirit is the spirit of Christ that will bear witness to Christ makes total sense that he's going to bear witness to the truth. And how's he going to do that? We don't get it by laying down our head at night and having this vision. We do it by the teaching that Christ has given us. The teachings, the bearing witness to what he said and done. Remember what the Holy Spirit does? The bearing witness about Christ, the bringing to remembrance all that Christ has said and done, the guiding us into all truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's why he's a spirit of truth. If there's another spirit that makes much of himself, that's not the spirit of Christ. Man, I'm talking diagnostically. And I'm not talking about all environments where people are flopping around on the floor getting bonked in the head. But it's strange that in 
at least I hadn't seen a lot of them, but the ones I've seen, I'm like, man, do y'all talk about Jesus at all? Or is it all the Spirit? Spirit this, Spirit that, Spirit that, Spirit that. I'm saying, man, according to my Bible, Spirit guides us in all truth, and the Spirit bears witness about Christ. The Spirit's like a big arrow that's going, saying, who, there he is. Look at him. Isn't he awesome? Let me expose what he said and done. Let me give it meaning. And how does he do this for us? He does it with the breathed out word of God. Taught, preached, shepherding in your home, reading it, engaging it. That's the instrument that he uses to guide us into all truth. So we defined last week truth. On one end of the truth continuum, it's true that the uh, mall, what's the mall here called? Crossroads Mall is not a real mall. That's true. (laughs) But then on the other end, there are amazing truths that the Holy Spirit dwells in us to guide us into all truth. That's eternal truth that's worth engaging. So truth is truth only in so much as it's provided by, communicated by, and guarded by the Holy Spirit. Good good medicine. Today we're going to go to the consideration that this Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's right here in this passage. He's the spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, you guys know him for he dwells with you. And check it out, he's going to dwell in you. Turn to Exodus chapter 35. I want to show you something. It's, you have to take in the full sweep of our Bibles to understand the significance of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Let me give you kind of a bird's eye view of where we're going. We're going to consider the tabernacle first, and then we're going to consider the temple, and then we're going to consider what happened at Pentecost. First of all, the tabernacle. Let me give you kind of a bird's eye view. God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. They've been in slavery there for 400 or so years. He leads them out of Egypt through the plagues, the final one being the Passover where the firstborn of Egypt dies. They walk across the Red Sea on dry land. They go into the wilderness. They go to Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments. While Moses is off up at the top of the mountain, all the people talk Aaron into getting all the, the gold together and making a golden calf. And Moses says, huh, I didn't know how that happened. We just threw it in the fire and pop out came a calf. And they danced around this fire like a bunch of hooligans. And Moses came back down the mountain, dropped the tablets. And then he mobilized the rest of the the Levites. Grab your swords and start hacking away your brothers and sisters and children for what they have done. They turn into a bunch of ninjas. And then he brings a plague on them. And then we pick up in chapter 35. Just look at the headings. Midway through chapter 35 become the contributions for the tabernacle. They're in the wilderness. They've gotten the Ten Commandments. They're starting to get the rest of the law. Moses is meeting with God at a place called the Tent of Meeting. And now enters this new thing called a tabernacle. It's also called the Tent of Meeting, but the the Tent of Meeting initially was different. It was just Moses and God. But then it morphs into this thing called the tabernacle. Midway through chapter 35, they start getting together the contributions for the tabernacle. Look on down. There's construction of the tabernacle. Chapter 37, there's the making of the ark where they will put the tablets of stone. They'll put some manna in there. There's the making of the table. I'm just reading my headings in my Bible. You may have a little different headings. Just look at your headings just to get the big picture. 
There's the making of the lampstand, the making of the altar of incense, chapter 38. There's the making of the altar of burnt offering, making of the bronze basin, making the court, making the materials for the tabernacle, making the priestly garments. There's chapters and chapters dedicated to what's unfolding here. What they're making essentially is a place for God to dwell with his people. Look where we pick up in chapter 40. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. I'm jumping down. Put the altar of burnt offering before the door. Jumping down. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. Chapter or Verse 9. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. Verse 13, put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them. Verse 16, this and everything that I didn't read, Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. Look down at verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Now look at the next verse. Then, they built a place for God to dwell. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What I want you to notice is on, on this move-in day for where God is going to dwell with his people into the tabernacle, there is a doggone light show. I mean, there's fire. Whoosh. There's clouds. If we were witness to something like this, we would probably be trembling. It'd probably be pretty, pretty amazing, pretty remarkable where God moves in to what Moses and the people of Israel have built. It's a big day because God is going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. Now turn to 2 Chronicles. That's the tabernacle. Now we're going to look at the temple. Just kind of be ready at chapter 5, but let me give you a little context with reading a few passages earlier on in 2 Chronicles. The book of 2 Chronicles starts out with this picture of Solomon and a bunch of people going off to worship at this tabernacle that Moses built. Okay, we're going to have to connect dots here. You've got to be real intentional. You've got to really engage. This is a meal for the spiritual. I'm encouraged at that. So the spiritual will engage this. Listen, and Solomon and all the assembly with him, stay over there in chapter 5 and just kind of be ready to look at some headings. And listen, and Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. The tent that we just read about. The place that was built and a light show happens, <laughs> fireworks, when God shows up to move in, was at Gibeon. Solomon goes there. The chronicler connects us here. 
He connects Solomon and what he's about to do to what we just read. Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, that same bronze altar that Moses and his craftsmen built, which was at the tent of meeting, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. You know how the story goes. He asked for wisdom, and God approves. Says, good job. Didn't ask for money. So I'm going to give you all that stuff too. He gives him wisdom. And then in chapter 2, it begins with this. Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. He says, Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicated to him for the burning of incense, of sweet spices before him, and for the regular arrangement of the showbread, and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord of our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. So, look at the headings. Actually, look at chapter 3. Just You're probably on the same page. Solomon builds a temple. Chapter 4, the temple's furnishings. Chapter 5, the ark is brought into the temple. In the ark are the two tablets of stone. And then when this ark is brought in, there's another show. Get ready for the light show. Starts in verse 12 of chapter 5. The Levitical singers, Asaph, my kids call him as soon as possible, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. That's some serious trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. You ready for the light show? You're going to see more of it. The house, the house of the Lord, this one that's going to replace the tabernacle. The one, the tabernacle's built of canvas. This one's going to be built of amazing stuff like cedars and stuff. The house of the Lord is filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. But I have built for you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. In verse 12, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. In verse 14, he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it to this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel... Keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised to him. And then down in verse 18, he says, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? It's a good question. What's God up to dwelling with man on earth? He says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house. Used to be the tabernacle. Now it's this sweet house called the temple. He's going to beg him, say, Lord, turn your attention to this house. 
the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Listen to what he says. He says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house... He's going to say, please show up. Then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head. Verse 24, if your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain, it's just these one scenario after another. And he's pointing toward the house. God, show up. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Verse 28, if there's famine... Verse 29, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or all your people, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of the children of mankind when a foreigner shows up. Verse 34, if your people go out into battle. Verse 36, if they sin against you. Verse 38, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity and they turn toward this house that I have built for your name and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. He says, and now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place. He's saying, God, please move in. Please move into this temple that I built for you. You and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. And let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, for your servant. For David, your servant. In, verse, in chapter 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The first picture is God moving into a tabernacle built by human hands, feeble, sinful human hands, where a holy God's going to dwell with sinful man. The second is a holy God's going to dwell with sinful man in the temple. And when he shows up, man, it's on. It's a light show. It's fireworks. Like Solomon says, man, heaven can't even contain you. What are you going to do dwelling with man? That's like a scandal. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. We've got to eat the whole council. 
We've got to eat some scripture to understand what took place at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Sounds like community. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were seated, sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each key, one of them. Rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, or the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. But Peter standing with the eleven. Oh, this is for the spiritual. I know it's a difficult transition. Lots of scripture. But the spiritual will discern this and celebrate it. But Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose. Since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. On flesh? Now, it used to be a tabernacle. Like really nice canvas. And all these accoutrements and fixtures. And the priests with the ephods and all the gear and hats and all the stuff that they wear. And then it was the temple built from cedars and all kind of stuff from all over the world. And now it's going to pour out on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Sound familiar? Fire. Vapor of smoke and blood. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He goes off and preaches an amazing sermon. And then it picks up in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, even in Greenville, Texas, 2,000 years later. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 
souls. Just like Jesus said, he's dwelt among you, but he's going to dwell in you. That day was Pentecost when he showed up and he moved in and there was a light show. And there were fireworks, the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the house. There's divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each of them. They spoke in languages they didn't know and others understood the preached message in their own tongue. Like an undoing of Babylon. And as they preached, 3,000 people repented and believed and were baptized. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to see how this comes together. God, it's so amazing. 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 16. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says this. He says, do you not know that you, use plural. He's not speaking to a bunch of individuals. He's speaking to a people. You people, you guys, y'all. Y'all are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. That's the scandal of this crazy story. That's why Pentecost was such an amazing, dramatic moment and a unique time. Because God showed up and he moved from a tabernacle to a temple to a people. Not dwelling with them, but dwelling in them. Moving into the heart of man. He moved from a tabernacle to the temple to the heart of man at Pentecost. The most holy place became your heart. That's the scandal of this Holy Spirit indwelling us. That's the thing that should go, what? At Pentecost, God's dwelling place moved from the tabernacle to the temple to the hearts of 3,000 people who became a people. The first church, people who repented and believed, and he moved in with mighty show, with mighty works. Won't you just imagine if someone were at this event or someone were hearing this sermon, if we could go back, let's see, that would be 2,000. 3,500 years ago to someone who saw God show up when the tabernacle was erected. Or someone who saw that light show. Or someone who saw the care and the work and the effort that went into building the tabernacle. Let's grab one of those guys and let's grab a guy that was there when the temple was, de- was, was dedicated by Solomon 3,000 years ago. And let's grab them and set them in a pew right here. We'd probably have to do CPR on them. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I saw God show up and move into the temple, and it was amazing. We all soiled ourselves. I was like, man, I wish I wore my depends today. Everybody's doing CPR on each other, blowing up. Hey, wake up, honey. Because God showed up and moved in. God, the God of heavens, moved in and dwelled with the people in a tabernacle and in the temple. And now at Pentecost, he moves into the heart of man. They'd be like, man, are you kidding me 
Take those two people who were there witness to the cloud and fire that rested on the tabernacle. Tell this to the family of Uzzah who reached out and just happened to touch the ark because it kind of stumbled. The oxen stumbled and it looked like the ark was going to fall. And he assumed that his hand was cleaner than the ground. And he touched the ark and he fell stone cold dead. Tell it to Uzzah's family that God is going to dwell in the heart of man. And here you go. Are you crazy? Man, that's a scandal. I understand how he's going to live in the tabernacle. Because, man, I know all the work that went into that. I know I understand how he's going to move into the temple because that place was amazing. But he's going to move into the heart of man? Man, they would see this as a scandal. I think the word that they would be was flabbergasted. It's a good word. Flabbergasted. (laughs) Are you kidding me? They would say, oh, he's dwelled with us, but now he's going to dwell in us? Now that is a scandal. See, we've got to take in the full sweep of this story to appreciate what happened at Pentecost, to appreciate here 2,000 years later while we're preaching and engaging a message on God dwelling in us, the gravity of what's taking place there. Man, it ought to blow our minds. We ought to be like flabbergasted with those two people from the tabernacle dedication and the temple dedication. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 8. I want you to make this transition now. If God is dwelling in you, here's what this means. And here's what it means if he's not in you. Hopefully you're blown away by the fact that he moved into people. But now let's consider the reality of what that means. First of all, in verse 8, it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In verse 9, it says, You, however, you Roman believers, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, it's another, it's synonymous for Spirit of God, does not belong to Him. It's the thing you guys have to realize from these last three weeks talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about what He does. You've got to realize if you don't connect to what He does, then He's not in you. Scott and I talk on Thursday afternoons and we kind of chew on things before the weekends. It's kind of our ending of the week is Thursday evenings. And Scott said, you know, maybe that's why people are so taken with the charismata. Because we believe that if the Holy Spirit is in us, then something should show up. There ought to be some evidence. So we get excited about some sort of evidence that looks like maybe there's something different, otherworldly going on there. So it makes a lot of sense. We want some evidence. And it's a natural desire. And it easily explains how some could take a letter like the book of 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 12 through 14, that was actually a scolding about mishandling how God, what God was doing there and take it as prescriptive because we want evidence that the Holy Spirit is living in there. Now, wherever you land on the charismatic, and it's okay to have different beliefs in the same faith. Wherever you land on the charismatic, though, we must consider what we've learned about the Holy Spirit these last few weeks. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you'll connect with what the Spirit does. He teaches all things. He brings to remembrance all that Christ has said and done. He bears witness to Christ and who He is. And He guides us into all truth. If you have no use for those things, things that the Holy Spirit does, then you're not spiritual and he's not in you. Don't be fooled. 
We live in an unusual context here in Greenville. I was praying for commerce because commerce is a lot like Greenville. It's sort of post-Christian where people have kind of, I've been there, done that. Yeah, I can tell you where I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I took a short dip in a cool pool. And I don't ever want to make little. It sounds like I'm making little of a short dip in a cool pool. I don't ever want to make little of those things. But those are not the picture of the entire faith. That could very well be the beginning of faith for some people. But the problem is we live in a context where most people think they're square with God because that has happened. And their assurance of salvation comes from, man, I remember what it was like that day. I cried, so it's for real. Man, think of all the things that can make you cry. (laughs) That's not where assurance of salvation comes from. If you want to have a sense of the Holy Spirit dwell in, in me, do you connect to what the Holy Spirit does? Teaching us all things. Bring to remembrance everything Christ has said and done. Bearing witness to who Christ is and what he's done. And guiding us into all truth. That is much better source of assurance of salvation. You have no use for those things like most of Greenville doesn't. But yet you've had an event. I don't know what that is. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, these are the things that will be there. And whatever someone may make of a prayer language or tongues or works of healing and the charismata, these things, the things that we just talked about, these are the mark of the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. These are the primary mark that you hunger for the taught realities about Christ. Do you hunger when he is born witness to by the Holy Spirit. How do you know if he's in there? You want to have a sense of how, you, how can I have assurance of salvation? You come under conviction as the Holy Spirit teaches through, yes, feeble preachers. <laughs> feeble teachers, some of y'all. Feeble shepherds, hopefully all of y'all. You come under conviction when the word is read. You hunger for the truth because the spirit of truth is in you. It's a natural move. You want to be with him and his people. Your life is changing over time to look more like the Christ that he bears witness to. You want evidence of your salvation? That's evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If those things aren't there, man, I don't know what to tell you. So... The reason this has turned into three sermons is because where I'm going next, where I've gone the last couple of weeks on the so what. Okay, God moved into man, which is a total scandal, <laughs> which hopefully you're engaging the word that we've engaged so far, and you're agreeing, yeah, he moved in. And if he's not in there, then he's not in there, and you're not his. So if you've engaged this so far, it's appropriate for, for us to ask, so what if God dwells in man? I'm going to offer three things. First, it will impact your worship. Probably a couple years ago now that we had a series of sermons from the book of Leviticus. Dusted off the cobwebs and the dust, opened it up, and man, it came alive. As we realized the way that God, a holy God, dwells with unholy man. It's a book that explains how things are supposed to happen in this tabernacle that we read about a little bit ago. Because for a holy God to dwell with unholy man, something's got to die. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So for a holy God to dwell with unholy man, something's got to die. And God, through his amazing grace, yes, grace shows up in the Old Testament. 
He let them bring an unblemished lamb to the temple or a goat or a dove or some other critter. And they would come up there and place their hand on it as a picture of this is my substitute. And then they would slice its throat. And then depending on what sort of sacrifice it was or what sort of critter it was, it would go through a process of sacrifice and offering. And that blood would atone for the sin of the worshiper. So what you have to appreciate and know is this tabernacle was a very bloody place. It's the only way that a holy God could dwell with sinful man. He did not dwell with Israel because there was something redeeming in them. He did not dwell with Israel because there was something special about them. In fact, they proved otherwise. He didn't dwell with them because of any personal fitness. Nobody could come worship without an offering. Nobody would just stroll up to the tabernacle. Hey, what's up, priest? Hi, God, how's it going? You better have your critter with you. Because no one's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. For holy God to dwell with sinful man, something's got to die, and it's either going to be you, Nadab and Abihu, read about those jokers, or it's going to be the critter that you bring. That's the only way that a holy God can dwell with sinful man. So you've got to ask that question. How then now does a holy God, God the Spirit, actually dwell within sinful man? Because of one single sacrifice that's sufficient for all time. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see this. I want you to love this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14. As you're turning there, I want to show you that the indwelling Holy Spirit is a daily witness to the excellency, listen, the sufficiency and the power of the once and final offering of Jesus Christ. It perfected the worshiper for all time, past, present, and future. No more critters needed for God to dwell with unholy man because the ultimate critter, capital C critter, fully man but yet fully God, let us place our hand on his head saying he's our substitute. And he took his own life so that we might live. Listen to this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We don't need to go out into the field and find an unblemished lamb because he's already died for us. And in verse 15, see the connection to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The spirit that lives in us bears witness to the finished work of Christ. The spirit that lives in us testifies to the reality that he can live in us because Christ died for us, period. We have that daily, daily worship opportunity. And let me tell you, folks, this has got to impact your Tuesday. It's got to impact when dad, husband, you're in the kitchen... This never happened to me, but I'm going to share something that I've heard can happen. You're in the kitchen and your wife just said something that just really bothered you. And you're in there just really steamed. And you're like, oh man, I so want to just say whatever really on my mind. Again, this never happened to me. But 
I've heard it happen to some people. I really want to unleash and unload, but this reality invades that moment. And you go, know what? I'm not going, I'm not going to go there because I consider the sin that was forgiven me. And I'm not going to count that as wrong. <laughs> Man, in light of what's been done for me, how could I be mad at my wife? How could I fight back or unleash? This must impact your Friday night when some of you sit lonely. Thinking, man, I wish I had me a husband. I wish I had me a wife. I wish I had a family. I wish I had kids. Loneliness is just so rampant. These realities have got to invade those moments. That's called worship. The spirit within you testifies to these sort of realities. That once and for all time, the mind of the, the worshiper is perfected because of the finished work of Christ. We don't have to, with Jacob, have to make a trip to the tabernacle every day. It's done. Once and for all time, and God can actually move in. Worship is when the once and for all time sacrifice of Jesus Christ invades your life between Sundays and is brought to bear on that kitchen frustration. On that Friday night, loneliness. It's got to invade your worship. Secondly, it's got to impact how you live. I don't want you to turn there, but I'm going to share a passage with you. I just want you to listen. If you're the temple for the Holy Spirit, I want you to just listen. And let me kind of prepare you before I read this passage. The indwelling Spirit sets you apart as different. In that John 14 passage where he says, but you guys, you guys, he, you know him because he dwells with you, but he's going to dwell in you. He contrasts the, those who are walking tabernacles and temples for the Holy Spirit with the rest of the world that doesn't know him. See, we are set apart and we are holy, undefiled with the world. We are a tabernacle and temple for the living God. You've got to engage that reality. Listen to this one chapter. Just listen. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed them with the robe and with the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he put on the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times. He anointed the altar with all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger he put it on the horns of the altar around it. 
And he purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat. Do you hear the detail that has to do with the purity of this tabernacle? And Moses burned them on the altar, but the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with the with the fire outside the camp and the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering and a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. It just goes on and on and on and on. The elaborate involved worship of in the tabernacle environment the purity of that environment matters so much it's the same thing for the temple this has got to impact how we live knowing that god lives in us when you consider the tabernacle care and the priestly duties and the cleansing rituals for just the daily operation of tabernacle worship, if we can just get our hands around the reality that God lives in us, then maybe our lives would look different. Maybe we would be urgent. Consider the care that went into the tabernacle and temple. That's the care that should go into you and what you do with your temple and your mouth and your hands and your feet and your computer. And your time and your money and your thoughts. When you go, oh, wait a second, God's living in here. It's inappropriate for me to go to this place. For the tabernacle was always the tabernacle. It wasn't a whorehouse on Thursday, a diner on Tuesday, a bowling alley on Saturday. It was always the tabernacle. And we will always be, if the Holy Spirit has moved into us, tabernacles as well. It's got to change how you live. It's got to invade everything. Because we don't ditch him at the door when we leave today. He goes with us. Read Ephesians 4, the passage that talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. When the Holy Spirit lives within you and you're living like you're living in the world, you're grieving that God within. Man, it's got to hit you. Wait a second, man, God is living in me? Are you kidding me? That's got to change how I think. It's got to change how I speak. And not to earn his presence there, but just to be in keeping with his presence there. It's got to change how you live. And lastly, it's got to impact how you engage other people. Turn to John chapter 7, our last passage. Oh, this is so beautiful. I've preached through this passage and it wasn't until I came to this point that I'm looking back at this passage now and going, oh man, it's just unleashed now. In light of chapter 14, it's just unleashed. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, this is the Feast of Booths, it's where the nation of Israel gathered and they remembered the time that they were moving across the wilderness, living in booths, huts, tents. They would build these little booths and remember that time. 
And on the last day of the feast, they had a kind of a water offering. Each day of the feast, they would go off to the pool of Siloam and gather up water. And they would have this big procession. And they would come back and they would gather all this water up into a big basin. And on the last day of the feast, they would take this big basin and pour it over the altar. Thanking God for his water that he's provided for them over the years. And thinking back to their nation of Israel time in the wilderness when they lived in booths. They're in that context that the Lord says, I think it's at, it must have been at the very moment that he poured the water over the altar. We don't know that for sure, but it sounds like it'd be appropriate. He stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments on this. He explains it for us. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a passage where John is writing. He's referring to what's going to happen eventually when Christ is crucified and risen and glorified. And when he departs to be at the Father's right hand and Pentecost shows up and the Holy Spirit shows up, that's when the rivers of living water show up. It's so appropriate that they're pointing back to the Feast of Booze. You may remember remember the event at the Feast of Booze where the, the nation of Israel was thirsty. And God told Moses what to do. Speak to that rock. And water will come forth. He didn't speak to it. He grabbed his staff and he struck it. And water comes pouring forth from it. How appropriate that in this context that it's when our Lord was struck. When he was struck and glorified. then water comes pouring forth from him. And that living water is the Holy Spirit that he's referring to. And what he's saying here is so important that the one who believes in Christ out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You've got to connect to the reality that we are not reservoirs for the Holy Spirit. We're waterfalls. We are aqueducts. We are channels of the Holy Spirit. We are conduits for the Holy Spirit. What's taking place here week by week by week is not a terminal event for you. It's not just here to fill you up. It's to equip you and fill you up to where you can then gush over onto your family, shepherds. To where you can gush over onto your workmates. It's all about others. The Holy Spirit is not just here for your benefit. He's going to use you as an instrument, as an aqueduct. To then pour on others. Man, I ask you, when you hear the word taught and preached and exposed and these realities about Christ, are those terminal events? Do they just land on you and then maybe you think about them later, but they never migrate to your heart and then your mouth? And I'm going to say you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Is He flows out of you onto others. And we are to do it the way He does it. Teaching all things. Bringing to remembrance all that he has said and done. Bearing witness to Christ and who he is and guiding others into all truth. That's what we do. And men and single moms, I'm going to say first, it's as shepherds. And then all of us, it's as workmates. It's as brothers and sisters. Yes, real brothers and sisters like mine, 12 and 9 and 5. Not reservoirs. 11, I'm sorry, Evan but conduits pouring and gushing onto others. That's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's what we're to be about. Let me pray.
Lord, we are so thankful for your word that gives us the big picture. I pray that we've been attentive to it this morning, that we've engaged the momentous events of the move-in of the tabernacle and the move-in of the temple and the move-in to the heart of man, the plural heart of man as a people. Lord, I pray that even for a moment, just for a moment at least, maybe for the first time that we've been flabbergasted at that reality, that we can go back and that we can tremble with the witness to the tabernacle event and with the witness to the temple event and that we can tremble this morning, if for a moment, just realizing that God moved into man. And Lord, I pray that that will just transform how we worship, that that will invade that Tuesday kitchen frustration and that Friday night loneliness. Lord, I pray that it will invade how we live, that we will be arrested with the reality as men are tempted with pornography, as women are tempted with medicating with shopping, as many of us are tempted with medicating with food, our drugs, our alcohol, Lord, that we can just be satisfied with these amazing realities that you live in us and that we are walking temples and tabernacles and dwelling places for you. That we can consider that that fire rested on each of them. Lord, I pray that that will mean something to us and that will just shock us. And Lord, I pray that as we consider that the Holy Spirit, as he fills us because our ultimate rock was struck. As the Holy Spirit fills us, that we will just see ourselves as conduits and reservoirs, or not reservoirs, conduits and channels, waterfalls gushing on other people and that you will guard us from seeing ourselves as terminal and getting so into ourselves and so focused on ourselves and what we need and what we want that we never pour the Holy Spirit onto another. Lord, I pray that you will convict us with that. Show us where and how we can do that. And it feebly we'll step out in that in obedience. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit, what he's cast this morning onto the heart of man will find purchase. I pray that families will sit and talk about what they've heard. I pray that friends will talk over lunch about what they've heard. I pray that brothers will talk with each other and say, Hey man, are you living like a temple? Is there anything in us that's not bringing glory to the indwelling God? Lord, I pray that you will guard our hearts that will do that as an act of worship, never as an act of trying to earn something, but just simply in response and in keeping with who we are. Lord, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit. We're so thankful that Christ did not leave us orphans. And we pray these things in Christ's precious, holy, good name. Amen. Let's worship in song.